Tomorrow's a big night, right? The night that a lot, a lot of you, many of you, not all of you, uh, that, that many of you have, have longed for and hoped for. You know, there, there's nothing quite like it. The excitement's in the air. It's been hyped up because tomorrow night is the night a man from Alabama rallies his troops, <laughs> gathers his team together for the ministry team kickoff. And I know... <laughs> some of you... I'm from Alabama, you don't know. Um, I know y'all have been eagerly anticipating this. I, I, I do know there's, there's a big game tomorrow night, and I, I promise we're going to get done uh, before that game starts. But, but those of us who are meeting together for this ministry team kickoff tomorrow night, we are going to be focusing on three areas that we want to, three places where we want to make sure we're doing well as a church. Uh, the areas of worship, uh, an area we're calling build, which refers to building community and building disciples in an area we're referring to as reach, reaching out as a church body. How are we doing in those areas? How can we do better as a church? And that's what we're going to do tomorrow night. But what I want to do this morning is to talk about the message that ought to drive all those areas, the message that ought to drive why we worship and why we build and why we reach. It's a message that once you understand, it really changes everything about your life. Uh, we've all been exposed to, to life-altering messages. Um, you think back to the, Paul Revere saying the British are coming. Well, not many of us were there, but, but you know the story. Uh, the British are coming, the British are coming. That changed everything for the people who heard that message. You've received messages from the doctor that are, that are life-altering in, in good ways and at times in bad. Uh, the news that you've been accepted at school that you had applied for. The news that you got the job. Uh, the news that someone is asking you to marry them or hearing someone say, yes, I will marry you. Those are all life-altering messages. We're going to talk about this message this morning that has the power to change everything. That alters everything. That even alters the way you process all of those other messages. We're talking about the message of the gospel. The message of, of how man is made right with God. How our sins can be forgiven. How we can know and have eternal life. And we're going to talk about that this morning from the Old Testament. From the book of Samuel. Because Jesus, who is the focus of the gospel, said all the Bible really is about him. And so I hope we'll see that uh, this morning in our text. So if you would look with me. First uh, Samuel 12, we're going to read the entire chapter starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. 
And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, this that is your word, and that we have it in uh, language that we can read and understand. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would work through me and even over and above me, and that you would work uh, through this message this morning, and that you would stir us up. Uh, to hear and believe the good news of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every day, uh, the gospel is not the only message we hear. Every day we're bombarded with all kinds of messages that shape us and try to influence how we think about where the good life can be found. Uh, look this way. 
weigh this much, drive this car, vacation in this place, have these friends, be this kind of person. And we're, we're constantly receiving all these messages. In the midst of all of that, how does the gospel become the message that shapes our lives? How does it make sense of all the other messages and even rule over all these other messages that we hear? How does the gospel become the message that shapes the way that I think about the world and the way that I actually think about myself as well? I want us to look at uh, four things in this text that I think are involved in understanding and embracing and living by this gospel message. I want us to see the reality of our situation. We need to see the reality of our situation. We need to see a mediator. We need a mediator. We need to see God's grace. And then we need to learn to walk with the Lord. So let's start here. We need to see the reality of our situation. Chapter 12 in the book of Samuel is something of a farewell speech for Samuel. He's going to kind of begin to drift off the scene here uh, to a large extent. But it's also a trial. And it begins with Samuel putting himself on trial before the people of Israel. And he, in essence, says to them, all right, you first, you judge me. Uh, have I been a good and a faithful leader to you, the people of Israel? And the people of Israel say, yes, you have. And so that trial is concluded, but that's just the undercard. The, the main event is coming next, where Samuel is actually going to put the people of Israel on trial. Uh, Samuel, in verse 6, puts them on trial and he begins to make this case that while God has been faithful to them, the people of Israel have not been faithful to God. They've been unfaithful. How have they done that? How have they been unfaithful to God? Well, they've, they've done it plenty of ways, but, but the thing that's really front and center at this moment is the fact that the Israelites have asked for a king like the nations around them. And in asking for a king like the nations around them, basically they said to God, God, we're not willing to, to wait on you. We're not willing to seek you. We're not willing to trust you. What, what you have done for us, it's been great and all, but it really hasn't been sufficient. We don't feel like you can get the, God, the, get the job done. And so we, we want a king like everybody else has a king. And so what Samuel does then is he begins to show them, guys, actually God has been getting the job done for you. And he's been very faithful to you and patient with you and forgiving to you. And so he starts rehearsing these things. In verse 8 he says, remember when you as a nation were oppressed in Egypt and you cried out and God raised up Moses and he raised up Aaron and he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then in verse 9, they forgot God. You forgot, you forgot God. And so God brought judgment. Verse 10, you cried out, we have sinned, deliver us. And so God raised up these Savior deliverers, these, these kind of Old Testament superheroes, to deliver his people again. But then Nahash the Ammonite attacked. And instead of coming to God and saying, help us they said we want a king we need a king like everybody else has if we're going to get out of this situation and samuel says now look god's given you a king he's given you saul he's given you what you ask for but you need to repent and you and your king need to be careful and walk after me 
And then verse 16. Look at verse 16. We read this. Samuel says, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. Now, what's going on in this scene? It's kind of, a, kind of an odd scene. I just finished reading the book uh, Painted House by, by John Grisham. And the book is basically a story of a young boy growing up on a cotton farm in the 50s, in Arkansas and the big threat the whole book is that rains are coming and if the rains come and the cotton gets too wet you can't pick it and you lose the crop and so that's the threat hanging over them the whole time are these flooding rains that are supposed to be coming their way that's probably something like what's going on in this text the text tells us it's the time of the wheat harvest and God is saying to them with the storm he's bringing up See how easily I can wipe out what you've spent months trying to accomplish. And I can wipe the whole thing out in just a few minutes. I can ruin your crop uh, your, the, the, the way that you've been provided for. You need to repent. It's the message. You need to repent. Don't you see that your sin, which you've taken so lightly, is actually a serious thing in my eyes. And then it will bring my judgment if it's not repented of. And what happens? They get it. Uh, they see the reality of their situation. Look back at the end of verse 18. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They saw how God felt about their sin. They saw how God felt about them placing anything before him. They saw the reality of their situation. Now, if... The Bible is true, and, and I believe it is. We believe it is true. It says that we're in the same boat with them. That you and I are in the exact same boat with the Israelites. Uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament makes the case that we've done the same thing the Israelites have done. That we've each one turned away from God and, and gone our own way. Let me, let me read just a section of this and... I commend it to you to go back and, and, and read yourself maybe later today. This is Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so 
Paul is making an argument in the book of Romans that we've all done this. That we've all done what the Israelites have done here. And that we can't fix it ourselves. We can't fix it by turning over a new leaf or by helping poor people or by joining a church. We can't fix it ourselves. Uh, Romans goes on to say that the wages of what we done, have done is actually death, eternal death and separation from God. In other words, Paul in Romans makes the case, we deserve that thunderstorm of God's wrath to come down on our heads. We're in the same boat with the Israelites. But what many will say, what many will do is say, that, that, that's not going to happen. That, that's not really going to happen. God loves everybody. I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that bad of a person. It's going to be okay in the end. And we don't give it another thought of our standing with God. We're, we're sailing blissfully along, blissfully unaware of the true reality of our situation. We're kind of like uh, the passengers on the passenger boat Lusitania. The Lusitania was the, the boat that was sunk by a German U-boat, which basically brought America into World War I with all these passengers on it. There were warnings that they were in danger. But everybody's like, ah, it's going to be all right. They're not really going to shoot at us. The British Navy will protect us. We're going to make it all right. And then tragedy happened. They heard the warnings, but they thought, I'll be okay. Because of our sin, because of my sin, we're in the same situation as the Israelites, facing the wrath of God. Now, another way we try to uh, evade the weight of this is by saying things like, well, I hear that, but I don't think you should impose your moral system on me. I don't think you should impose your moral values on me. That Christianity stuff, that, that's okay if that works for you, but that doesn't really work for me. It's true for you, but it's not true for me. And everybody just has to go out and they have to find their own truth. But if, if you think that way, let me, let me ask you this question. Do you think that there are people anywhere in the world right now doing anything that is wrong? That you would say categorically, what that person is doing is absolutely wrong. Are there people doing things that you think categorically they should stop doing? That they should stop doing? Do you think that the Nazis should have stopped killing the Jews? Do you think that ISIS should stop? what they're doing. If somebody steals your car today, do you, do, they may be stealing it right now, hopefully not, but if somebody takes your car today, will you leave here and say that was, that was wrong, they should not have done that? If somebody beats up your kid, are you going to say that? No, you, you should not do things like that. I, I imagine that we'd all say yes, right? That, that these things are wrong. But when you say that, Aren't you imposing your values on somebody else? Aren't you imposing your values on the Nazi and on ISIS and on the guy who steals your car and on the person who beats up your child? And doesn't that mean that you, even though we may deny it, we really do think there are moral standards that everybody should be held to? There is a moral standard. Where'd that come from? Why do we have that sense? Uh, Annie Dillard, uh, in one of her books, writes about living next to a creek for a year, and she observed that 
no human people behave as badly as a praying mantis. Uh, and she says, but wait, you say, there is no right and wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures in an immoral world. Or, consider the alternative. It is only human feeling that is freakishly amiss. Our emotions are amiss. The animals are right. We're the ones that are wrong. We are freaks. The world is fine. And let us go and have lobotomies to restore us to our natural state. We can leave, lobotomize, go back to the creek and live on its banks as any muskrat or reed. And then she writes, you first. You first. You want to escape this feeling you have that there are absolutely rights and wrongs? You want to live like the animals, unconcerned with whether there is right and wrong? She says, well, let's go have part of our brain cut out so we can actually feel that way. You first. See, while we, we try to say oh, there's not any absolute standards, we all have them. Why do we all have them? Because we're made in the image of God. We're made in the likeness of God. And even though we may try to push it deep down inside of us, we know that there is a God. We know that there is a standard. But if there is a God, and if there is a standard, that standard is not just for everybody else. That standard applies to me and to you. And the Bible says we're all falling short of that standard, so we're in the same boat with the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 12. That's the reality of our situation. And you realize the reality of your situation. We have to realize that. Number two, we need a mediator. Um, I don't know what your house is like growing up or what your house is like now, now, but when I was a kid, there were certain things you went to mama about instead of the daddy. Okay, If, if there was some way you had messed up really bad and you needed to fess up to something, uh, or if you needed to ask something that you knew was not going to be popular, you, you needed a go-between. You didn't go directly to dad. You went and asked mom and hoped that she was going to work everything out for you. Mom needed to negotiate. She needed to be the mediator. In Exodus 20, uh, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, there's thunder, there's flashes of lightning, uh, there's a sound of trumpets, and the people of Israel terrified, and they say, and the text says, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. There's this sense in the Israelites that because of the holiness of God, they don't need to get too close to him. They need a mediator. They need a go-between. In 1 Samuel 12, when the people begin to see the reality of their situation, they turn to their current go-between. They turn to their current mediator. They turn to Samuel. Look in verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And so the reality of their situation is dawning on them. There's holy God, we are sinful people, we've messed up again, we deserve judgment. Hey, Samuel, help. Samuel, pray for us. We pray for us. You go to God and intercede for us. And he does. Verse 23, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. 
In other words, that's what I do. I've been appointed to intercede for you, and I will intercede for you. Well, if we're in the same boat as the Israelites, we need a mediator too. We need someone to intercede for us as well. We need a go-between, someone to cry out for us on our behalf. The New Testament says that we have that in Jesus Christ. First uh, Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. See, just as God had a dispute with the Israelites, God has a dispute with us. But Jesus comes as our mediator, and he represents us before the Father. He pleads our case. But he doesn't plead it by saying, well, Father, you really misunderstood what Justin did. He's really a pretty good guy. He doesn't plead the merit of our case. He pleads his blood. His case. He says, I've shed my blood for him. I've shed my blood for her. And that blood is sufficient to make payment for their sins. And so you should forgive them. They should be forgiven. They should be let go. My death is sufficient to cover what they've done. And the father hears the son and lovingly responds, I agree. I agree. Their debt has been paid. And so our debt is removed and our sin is done away with, not because of us, but because of our mediator, because Jesus Christ pleads the merit of his blood. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Look, you don't have to stand before God and try to make your own case. You've got a, you a court-appointed attorney. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to say, well, you really misunderstood what I said. You really misunderstood why. I didn't really. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. The good news is that God has appointed a mediator for us. And Jesus makes his case for us. And he doesn't defend us based on our record. He defends us based on his record. Where do I sign up for that? How do I get that representation? How much does it cost? It's free. It's free. It's free of charge. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest in him. And you will be saved. We need to see the reality of our situation. We need a mediator whom we have in Jesus. We need to hear words of grace. We need to hear words of grace. Uh, verse 18, uh, the people greatly feared the Lord. Verse 19, the people say, pray for your servants that we may not die. Verse 20, Samuel says, do not be afraid. Like, what? There's this thunderstorm thing and you do not be afraid. Why? Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Lord will not reject his people, even these who have continued to turn away from him over and over and over again, if they will simply humble themselves and turn to him. He continues to hold out forgiveness and restoration. Uh, Philip Yancey likes to talk about the, the scandalous mathematics of grace. The scandalous mathematics of grace. Because, you know, grace doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, we're used to 
no pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. The early bird gets the worm. I only want people to get what they deserve. But that's not the math of grace. That's not the math that Jesus uses. Now, Peter came to Jesus one time and he said, how many times should I forgive my brother who sinned against me? Seven times? And he probably thought he was being pretty generous because most Jewish rabbis of the day say, well, three times, and then that's, that's probably enough. And so Peter says, well, seven times? Do I have to forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. That's grace math. That's the kind of math we want to teach as a church at Pine Street Elementary School. All right, That's in our common core. Uh, that, that, that's the math of Grace Presbyterian Church. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, Jesus tells this story, this parable, about a foreman hiring a bunch of people to work in his vineyard. And the people that he hires at four, that start working at 4.30 in the morning, he pays the same as the people who start working at 4.30 in the afternoon. And some of them are kind of upset about this. And the foreman says... Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? That's grace math. That's the, that's the math of grace. God delights to give undeserved grace to sinners, to, to, to his people in the Old Testament, to people like you, to people like me. This is good news. That, that you don't have to keep reliving that thing that you know you shouldn't have done, but you did. You don't have to keep rewinding it and playing it over and over again. Samuel says, come back. Come back. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Come back. Your God is a God of grace. Don't let your shame keep you from receiving and experiencing the joy of God's forgiveness. Jesus would say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest I will give you rest don't let your sin and your shame keep you from returning to God and knowing his grace uh, in Les Mis John Valjean has this chance to, to execute his nemesis uh, and, and, and probably rightly felt like he, he should be able to execute him and instead he frees him he frees him. And Javert, the nemesis, says to him, you're just trying to cut a deal. And he says, no, I'm not trying to cut a deal. You are free. You are absolutely free. There's nothing that I blame you for. Even though he could have. That's grace. That's grace. Uh, the story is, is told of an Irish priest who was walking along the countryside. And he ran into this guy who was kneeling in prayer. And the priest said to the man, you must be very close to God. And the man thought about it for a second and he said, yeah, he's very fond of me. And he didn't mean it in a self-righteous way. He just understood grace. Yeah, he actually loves me. He's very fond of me. Do you know how much it would change the way we approach worship, building community, reaching out? If I got up in the morning, if you got up in the morning and said, God is actually very fond of me. God is very fond of me. I, I, I serve a gracious God who is very fond of me, who loves me. That wouldn't just change how you think about ministry teams. That would change how you think about everything. 
about everything. We need to see the reality of our situation. We need a mediator. We need words of grace. We need to hear those words. And then we need to learn to walk with the Lord. Verse 20 and 21. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. Now we, we talk about this all the time. And, and Samuel is talking about idols and idolatry. Every day, even as believers, these false gods are crying out to us, Hey, over here. Come worship over here. Come invest your life over here. Come invest your time over here. We'll bring you profit. We'll bring you joy. We'll rescue you from the futility of of life in a fallen world. And Samuel says, those are lying gods who can't deliver on what they promise you. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. But they, they do call us every day. And so we have to learn to listen instead to the voice of our Savior. The one who gave himself for us. The one who is very fond of us. The one who brings us these words of grace. And we have to learn to say, you know what? Popularity. You know what? Comfort. You know what? Wealth. You know what? Earthly treasures. Thanks. But no thanks. Thanks. But no thanks. I've got a better Savior. A Savior who loves me. And His name is Jesus. Uh, Christian singer uh, Derek Webb, I was reading this week, he and his uh, wife divorced about a year ago. And he wrote a, a post to his Facebook page in which he took responsibility. He had taken responsibility for the divorce before, but he explained, he confessed to have been unfaithful to his wife. And he said basically this whole thing was my fault. And without going into detail, the essence of what happened was, was that in the moment, he didn't believe these words of verse 21. Uh, Verse 21 again, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. But he turned aside to them. And he found out that Samuel was right. That these are empty things. Uh, in one of Derek Webb's better-known songs that he, he wrote before he had committed adultery, he sings, I am a whore, I do confess, but I put you on like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle to you. It's a song of confession. It's a song of him saying, I am a sinner, but I clothe myself with the righteousness of Jesus Christ like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle to my Savior. This is what he writes now. There has always been some measure of distance between me and the content of my songs. There's a sense in which even the most confessional of my songs, like Wedding Dress, or its most recent sibling, Heavy, felt like they were about someone else. Do you Feel that like when you're conf- when we do the confession, is it about you or is that, that all that confession stuff is for somebody else? It always felt like they're about someone else. 
So the accidentally prophetic sting of those songs is especially acute and painful in light of my great failures. Songs like those have never been more difficult to sing, but I've never been more grateful to have to. I've said recently that my songs feel like my personal liturgy, things I don't necessarily or always believe, but I show up to recite again and again in hopes of believing them. If I'm honest, most of the time I don't believe the words in my songs. I have a hard time believing in a God that could make, let alone love a man who could do such things. So I'll go on reciting and adding to my liturgy in hopes of believing the words because I wish to. More than ever, I wish to. He's sung about the reality of sin in the past. But now it's his sin. It's not somebody else's sin. It's his sin. He's recognized the reality of his situation. He's seen the way that he ran after empty things. His struggle now is to hear God's words of grace and to trust in his mediator, to trust in Jesus. And so what he does, he doesn't run away from it all, he keeps singing in order to believe. In order to believe. Uh, we're going to sing two songs as we end, and in, in between them, the Lord's Supper is going to be sandwiched, and they're, they're two songs about the grace and the mercy of God. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is about what Jesus has done to save sinners. And my prayer for us as we sing, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, is that in spite of the overwhelming reality of our situation, we would believe these words of grace and mercy that we sing. We would believe this gospel that we sing. We would believe these words of assurance that we hear. We would believe the Lord's Supper that testifies to God's grace to us in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, Father, I pray that we would see the reality of our situation. That we would be able to be honest about that and not feel like we need to hide it or cover it up. But I pray also that we wouldn't despair because there is a mediator and you do speak words of grace to, to all who come to him. You don't say you should have done better. You simply say, come and find forgiveness in the work of my son. Uh, so, Father, I pray that, that you would be at work this morning and that we would believe these words that we sing and we confess and we celebrate. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.